Hi, my name is Paul Caroli, and I host a podcast called Changing Denver. It's a monthly show about our city's physical spaces, how we make them, and how they make us. But it's so much more than that. It's the conversations, ideas, and stories that define Denver's perpetual state of flux. Find more from our team at changingdenver.com and join the conversation on Twitter at Changing Denver. Denver's changing. We can help. You have all made it to the dance. You have all made it, made it, Coming to you from the X-Access, it's John of All Trades with your host, John X. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the John of All Trades podcast, episode 106. I'm your host, John X. Thank you for joining us. Glad to have you back once again on this week's show. Someone I found out is my neighbor, someone who biked right down the street, came, sat in my basement. We talked pop culture. His name is John Wenzel, and he is a reporter for the Denver Post. He also freelances for Esquire and for Split Cider. And he's got something like 30, maybe even 50 plus different publications where he's had a byline. He's a writer. He's a journalist. He's great at it. He wrote about me. You may remember that from more than a year ago. It was unfortunately for me when I was on hiatus and I had just left my corporate gig and he was writing a story about Denver podcasts. He reached out to me and I appeared in the article. It was fantastic. Now, one of the most interesting things about John is that he writes about entertainment. He writes about pop culture. He writes about the things that we consider diversions, things that are leisure activities. But that becomes work when you get paid to cover it. And we talk about how you overcome pop culture burnout because it can happen. When I was writing about HBO, I didn't want to look at or think about TV because I was constantly writing about it. I was looking at the HBO schedule with dread. Now, HBO, they make great shows, right? That seems like it's going to be a lot of fun. But when you have to think about it critically, you start to dread it. And how do you overcome that? That's something that we cover pretty extensively here. A lot of my fans, huge pop culture junkies, right? Seems like a dream come true to be able to write about pop culture and entertainment for a living. Well, it comes at a cost, and that's in this week's episode. Also in this week's episode, if you know anything about me, you know I care very much about journalism. We talk about the future of journalism. We talk about how that profession has evolved over John's 30-something years doing it, 25 years maybe. He said he started in high school, and I think he mentions in the episode that he's like 40. How has that evolved, and how do we ensure the future of journalism? All in all, it's a great, great chat with just a super dude. He's very thoughtful, very insightful, very incisive. And you'll hear, he's got a very writerly way of speaking. He can turn a phrase like a champ. Unlike me, are you kidding me? He can turn a phrase like a champ? Jesus, what a horse's ass thing to say. Regardless, thankfully this episode's about him, not me. So we'll get to that here in a second. But first, I'd like to give a plug to our sponsor, 4 Degrees. It's campaign season, you've heard me say that, and 4 Degrees is cooking on all cylinders. Because what they do is outreach on the web. Whether that's social media advertising, whether that's grassroots coalition building, whether that's some sort of targeted campaign to get in front of constituents, or if you just run a business, plain old consumers. They do a great, great job at it. They are familiar with the platforms that you want to be on, and they will create content tailored to that platform and get your message in front of the people who need to see it most at a cost that is unbelievably reasonable. They are a great, great firm to work with. I cannot recommend them highly enough. And you know what? They're my sponsor, so pay them some love. Four Degrees, the number four, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. Speaking of social media platforms, you can follow John of All Trades on Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, and Pinterest. All four of those have the same handle. It's J-O-A-T-Pod. And then as long as you're going around and getting set up with all your John of All Trades content, make sure to go to iTunes or Stitcher. We are syndicated on both those devices. So if you're on Stitcher, new episodes will just come up in your feed and you'll be able to listen to them as soon as they're available. That's generally on Wednesdays. iTunes, you can subscribe and they'll get downloaded right to your listening device as well. So a couple of great ways to listen to John of All Trades. Please leave us a rating. Please give us a review. And you know what? Tell your friends. 
get more people to listen to the John of All Trades podcast because I like to think I'm doing a little bit of journalism here too. We have fun on this show, but ultimately we're uncovering parts of society that we may not think about or may not acknowledge as much as we should. So let's get to this week's episode where we talk about journalism and we talk about covering pop culture and entertainment with John Wenzel from the Denver Post. He is episode 106 of the John of All Trades podcast. We're happy to have him and his episode starts right now. Uh, I thought it was a little, a little sad. I, I think I fall in the same spectrum as everyone else, which is they kind of got what was coming to them. But it's also sad to see any media startup that deflates egos and holds people to account and whatever get savaged by a billionaire and <laughs> sold right. and bas- basically strategically taken down and taken apart because a lot of what they did was not salacious and shitty and a lot of it was good. And uh, some of their off offshoots are really good. Yeah. Like, I think they're going to keep Kotaku and Jezebel and some of those places. Right, and Gizmodo. Open, but... Um, yeah, so, you know, I mean, they kind of... It was it was a karmic action, but at the same time, I hate to see any media site just get, you know, fucked so hard like that. Well, and anecdotally, I heard that Gawker actually had, like, fairer pay practices than certain places like Vice and Vox and... Yeah, well, they were one of the first startups like that where the people unionized and did it successfully, right? Uh, that I don't know, um, or, or some some form of I that. I, I might be speaking out of school here, but I feel like I read something about how employees there either unionized or quasi unionized or whatever. Well, everything I've heard because I'm a regular Deadspin reader was about how the editors like were always really good about reimbursing expenses and they always got paid on time. And that wasn't true of all the publications that they worked for. And so I thought that was really, really good. And whether or not you agreed with the sort of editorial tact that Gawker or its properties took, I mean, you can certainly take issue with that. And AJ Delario was notorious at Deadspin for, you know, turning it into dong shots and things like that. (laughs) But you know, so the whole Kogan thing wasn't surprising, but I think what was disappointing was Peter Thiel, who bankrolled the whole Kogan lawsuit, was basically butthurt about an article that happened 10 years prior. And, like, don't get me wrong, it's wrong to publicly out a person mm-hmm. who, who is not, who, who does not want to be right. outed. That's not someone else's choice. That's, I, that's choice. unequivocally wrong. Yeah. However, to basically end an entire media site for personal hurt feelings. Right. Where, I I don't know. I just I I was disappointed by it, and it was weird that Univision bought it. Yeah, I don't know what to make. Well, of they it. were the only. It was them and uh, someone else. I forget who were like the only bidders. Yeah, there weren't uh, any serious bidders. Well, I mean, who's going to buy a media empire in 2016? You yeah, n- no one who wants to make money. Really. <laughs> right. It's like the same thing you hear about wineries. You know, it's like how do you make a million dollars in a winery? Start with two million. Right. And so, <laughs> like, that. I haven't heard that. That's that's pretty good. Yeah. So, I, I think that's probably true of media properties, which segues nicely into my intro here. John Wenzel sitting in my basement, and it turns out we're neighbors. We are, yeah. I live uh, just a few blocks away. Yeah, what, like? Here in North Park Hill? It's probably like 10 blocks, right? Because there's two blocks per letter. Two blocks per letter. You're on the B Street. I'm on an E Street. So that yeah. would be 10 blocks from Colorado Boulevard to where I live. Okay, so maybe like six blocks then. Yeah, like not that far. I rode my bike over here. Yeah, which is crazy. I used to run because, I mean, you mentioned like we're on the same sort of like numeric block too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I used to run by that all the time. It's amazing I never saw you. Yeah, well, you know, I'm I'm in the yard 24-7, <laughs> muscles rippling, like... Just digging trenches. Like groundskeeper Willie, just out there doing the work. Right, right. I, I take that for granted, because right. I'm not in my front yard doing that. Yeah. But uh, Denver Post, Split Slider, Esquire, and a whole ton of others, right? I mean, I, how, how many can you count as a byline? Have you ever In terms of places up? I've freelanced for, or places I've had stuff published in? Or? Both, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I think on my LinkedIn, I list like maybe 30 places. But, you know, I mean, that's the culmination of... I've, I've been writing professionally since I was in high school, so wow. and I'm, I'll be 40 next year. So that's, you know, that's 20-something years of writing. Yeah. And, uh, it's not like uh, the majority of it happened overnight. It's just kind of a slow, uh, a slow slog. Well, <laughs> and I don't mean to brag, but at one point, I was writing for 12 different pro wrestling websites, when I was in college, 
And it was one column that ended up syndicated in a bunch of different places, out of which I made approximately zero dollars. Mm-hmm. So I don't mean to brag. As, no, I mean <laughs> as a writer, I I, w- I would say of all you know of all the places I've written for, I'd be surprised if I made money at a third of them. Really, or a quarter of them? Yeah. I mean, I wrote for free for many years to for various reasons, you know, because I wasn't savvy enough or whatever to build up my resume, but. I'd say it's only in the past five to seven years I've really made any money freelancing. Ah, so you got paid in the vaunted experience? Yeah, <laughs> experience or, you know, whatever. But, I mean... And ex- exposure? Yeah, any writer you've had on this show, and I don't I don't know if any of the people I'm naming have been on here. I wouldn't be surprised if all of them have been on here, but, um, you know, there's people that I would consider at a much higher level than me that live in Denver who are very good full-time writers and they you know work their asses off to make it happen jason heller he's um, been on here yeah joel warner people who write with with national voices and uh it's it's just it's tough it's a slog and yeah even at the the denver post (laughs) it's being a full-time writer there it's still it's it's tough but uh that's you know i wouldn't do it if i wanted to make money (laughs) (laughs) well the thing that i mean the thing that's weird is there's more content available than ever, and there's more people who want to be writers, which in a weird way is, I mean, almost almost flattening out the profession in a very weird way. Is that accurate? Is that indicative of your experience? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think blogging and the internet in general, there was a lot of discussion and hand-wringing, you know, 10 years ago, whenever it was maybe even 15 years ago, but, oh, everyone's a writer now. Everyone can be a writer, whatever. Right. And it's like the same things that make made you a writer 50 years ago, I think, are true uh, today is you feel like you have no choice but to write, that you right. have to do it. Yeah, you can't not do it. Yeah, and the things that make you a good writer, I think, today are the same things that made you a good writer however long ago is you read a lot, you write every day if you can or you yeah. try to, you try to punch up and read and try on different styles of writing, you know, without obviously plagiarizing. <laughs> and, right. um, you know, you, you just, you're just aspirational yeah. and, and, and you just try to do better and you work at it and it's, and it's, it's an art and a craft and a discipline and all those things. So I, I don't know that there's more writers, maybe as a percentage of the population, I, I think it's probably about the same. There's just more fucking people on the earth than there used to be and we hear them more because everyone's got a voice now or not everyone but if if you're lucky enough to have one then you're lucky enough to hear other people's voices too so what i think is indisputable is there are fewer traditional media jobs right where we're writing as a profession and one of the things that i'm interested in because i see this more and more i i've always been in pr it, like I've I've never been a professional journalist. I I had a very brief stint, and I may talk about this with you more coming up. But I got paid to write for Examiner dot com for a very brief time. I was I was writing about HBO and like prestige television. But I've spent a lot of time like on the other side, and for the longest time, journalists used to refer to PR as the dark side. So it's like you're either in journalism or you go dark side, and. There's less and less distinction about that anymore because there's so many more dark side jobs than there are journalism jobs. Is that true in in what you've seen in your estimation? Yeah, unfortunately, that's 100% true. There's there's fewer – I mean, people are reading for, – for example, there's more people reading the Denver Post than ever. Really? Online. Yes. Our, we, our online numbers are up, way up. And there's more people reading everything than ever there's just fewer people paying for it and there's fewer full-time writers so uh, there's fewer full-time jobs with benefits for writers but there's probably as much if not more opportunity to write than there's ever been yeah okay it's just do you want to not get paid much or at all and just freelance because almost everyone's going to you know some form (laughs) of you know some shifting spectrum of freelance to full-time these days so i i kind of don't remember your original question and i'm not sure if i'm answering it no i and but oh i i know what i was gonna say yes i have seen lots of people go to pr from journalism yeah uh, not just at the post but in a lot of places and um you know i think when you're a journalist there's a very clear line there and 
Certainly. Uh, if you're a former journalist, there probably still is a clear line in your head. So I don't think there's an erosion so much as it's just a defection. Okay. Yeah, I mean, because... Ever- people got to eat. Yeah, everyone's got a rent to pay or a mortgage to pay or whatever. And so when when the opportunity arises, I mean, I certainly don't fault them for it because... There are good PR people. There are bad PR people. It's just like any other profession. I mean, my wife's a realtor, and she says 80% of realtors are shit. Like, they're they're terrible. Uh, I found that true with PR people. I've dealt with some really god-awful journalists in my day. And I'm thinking, why don't I write this fucking story for you? Because I will do a better job of being objective about my own client Mm -hmm. than you will, because I understand it with more nuance than you do. And... I mean, that that was an unfortunate reality of working in a very complex technical industry. But your point still stands. You know, it's not necessarily an erosion. There's going to be quality people no matter what vocation they're actually doing at that particular moment. Yeah. I mean, look, journalism is alive and well. That Mother Jones thing about private prisons fucking, you know, led to a, a Department of Justice response. They stopped and, using, not that they were using a ton of uh, private services there, but, you know, I mean, there's still, journalism is not the exclusive province of any medium. Right. When print goes away, there will still be good journalism, if if, if it ever goes away entirely, which I'm not sure it will. But uh, there, there's, there's going to be good journalism regardless. That said, if we stop training people and teaching them that it's worth paying for and valuable and, and all these things, then there's probably going to be less of it. Yeah. That, that makes good sense. And I, I would argue, coming out of a program that was sort of journalism adjacent, that the principles you learn in journalism will inform you in terms of your career in a number of really interesting ways and a number of useful ways in terms of gathering information and making yourself either a better citizen or a better professional. And so I, I think your point is well taken. Thank you. Yeah. So you mentioned that you've been writing professionally since high school. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> can you take me through that a little bit? Because I don't think many people can say that. Maybe people in your profession can, but... Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's not like I was, uh, you know, like it was almost famous or something, although people <laughs> joke with me. Falling around Stillwater? Yeah, people made that comparison when I had a music scene in college. They're like, it's like almost famous. I'm like, no, it's not, because uh, <laughs> I'm not that good or at that level. And also, fuck you! I hate that movie. It's annoying and sappy. Do you um, really? Yeah, that movie's so. I can't. I cannot stand Cameron Crowe. I, I think you're in the minority in terms of. I'm sure I am. On, on I'm that. sure I am. I mean, Fast Times at Ridgemont High is a classic, but you know. yeah, no, I dig that. Uh, Wait, that's a Cameron Crowe movie, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, he wrote it, but it was directed by Amy Heckerling. Okay. Who later did Clueless? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I no, I mean, I think universally regarded as one of the worst movies. Uh, of recent memory is Elizabethtown. Yes. And that's a camera crew. Which I've never seen. Nor have I, but I just, people I like and respect, like I think Nathan Rabin talked about, I think it was his first my year of Mm -hmm. flops. Yeah, that sounds about right. I I think I read that actually. Yeah. I've been compared to an Ersaz Nathan (laughs) Rabin before, so Rabin, Rabin, however you pronounce it. So Yeah, I actually don't know. I'd love to get that comparison again. Well, so yeah, so, so I just, you know, I always wanted to either be like an artist or a writer like a visual artist or a writer. And by that, I mean, like, when I was, like, five, I drew a lot. <laughs> and then <laughs> when I was in grade school, I read a lot of Stephen King books and wrote a lot of stories. And then I just got on that track, sort of. You know, I had people... It's like when someone's like, I like turtles, and then for the rest of your life, everyone buys you turtle shit. <laughs> um, and then, it, you know, careful what you say, because that's what you become type thing. But in this case, it was a good thing, because, you know, people just pushed me into it or, you know, led me in that direction, and I led myself in that direction but yeah i guess the short version is like you know uh, i just wrote and read a lot because i wanted to because i i got off on it because i liked i mean this is so nerdy but i liked typing so much when, when we i learned how to type and got a typewriter i was like in grade school and middle school i guess and i would i would take stephen king books and i did this with misery was the first book i did it with and i typed out the book like i i, I transcribed it by like, typing it. like you're like a monk in a cave like i don't know like copy versions of the bible it was like, it had this this sort of magical feeling or value to me like i was creating or i was i wasn't creating anything i was just you know, <laughs> i was just copying it in a sense i wasn't passing it off or anything yeah but you were mine, getting but, good mechanically at but it was like it was weird it, there was some like magic in it to me of like watching words appear on a page and creating it so 
So yeah, so so uh, in high school. Wait, how know, old were you when you did this with Misery? By the way, I don't know, like fifth grade, maybe sixth grade. Okay, so ten, eleven years old, like yeah, something something like that. Let's let's say like maybe sixth grade. But uh, Mis- yeah, Misery is kind of a weird book to be into. Though, it it at is, that a, age, yeah. Right? No, I I was I had a very violent sick mind as a kid like in you know fourth and fifth grade i was super into horror movies and i write i wrote short very gory horror stories and you know i just i just loved stephen king i wrote everything he had written up until whatever that was like the late 80s early 90s wow i i had a friend growing up who used to draw like he he would just he would doodle all day that that sounds weird now that i now that that came out of my mouth um diddle would sound weirder yeah (laughs) But he did what he called happy drawings. And, you know, it was like guys like getting their heads blown up and, you know, just these yep. super violent I did that scenes. Too. And I think, I think he ended up having to like talk to the teacher and the principal and yep. stuff about it. And like he's a totally cool cat now. Like, you know, very successful, very normal, very like not unlike any other dude. But that's just what he was into. And I sat next to him for a long time and I, I was fascinated by these drawings because I, I couldn't draw like that and my imagination didn't work that way. Mm-hmm. You did the same thing? Yeah. I think if I if I was a, a kid now, I'd probably, in the age of social media and smartphones and everything, I'd probably get reported. Oh, good. Because <laughs> I, had, I had, you know, horrible, violent drawings and thoughts and all this stuff. I mean, I never acted on them and I never planned to act on them. I just, that was just the way, was, <laughs> just the stuff I immersed myself in was... Horror movies and horror novels and sci-fi and fantasy and wow, you know, starting with you know scary stories to tell in the dark and oh hell yeah and stuff like that. So, so yeah, so I just you know and, and I and I kind of gravitated more to writing than art. And so in high school, I did the yearbook and the school paper and the um, mm. the high school literary magazine. And I learned a little bit of computer stuff then back when you know there were the vertical Mac monitors and Aldous PageMaker and all that, right? And then in college, I, you know, did the school newspaper and started a zine with some friends, a music zine, because I was getting really into the music scene where I lived in Dayton, Ohio. This was the era. What was your music? Yeah. uh, This was the era of, you know, the Breeders and Guided by Voices and Brainiac. Okay. And the the Ohio music scene was just really good in in the mid, early to mid 90s. Afghan Wigs and Cincinnati and Gaunt and Thomas Jefferson Slave Apartments and all these great bands um, in Columbus and... What an unreal band name. That is so good. Thomas Jefferson Slave Apartments. Yeah. Yeah. It, it reminds One me. One of the best band names. Reminds me of, uh, Andrew Jackson Jihad. In, yeah. In that yeah. similar kind of way. Totally. So, so, and, you know, and that got me really into music journalism. And I was sure in college I wanted that my life's work was to be a music journalist, thus yeah. the almost famous things. <laughs> um, and then, yeah. And, and then I, and I just started freelancing in small, sort of ways and you know when i was in high school i wrote a little bit for the dayton daily news um for their like 13-19 teen page (laughs) and uh yeah and so and and i majored in journalism at call in college and then did they kick you some bucks for that no that was not a paid oh uh, that's that's horseshit yeah although they did profile me as like a young wannabe writer i have a dayton daily news print article of me like sitting in front of a typewriter in front of all my shit like my books and (laughs) I'm like John Wenzel's. I want to be a writer. It's like, <laughs> are you wearing auspicious? Are you wearing like a cable knit sweater? No, I don't. I'm sure I was wearing whatever I thought was my coolest shirt at the time. Because you know you could you could put that as your profile picture on like Pitchfork. Oh, totally. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that would be awesome. And but maybe, uh, maybe get some cred that way when you shit over you know shit on the new Arcade Fire album. Yeah, yeah, totally. I, I'm not sure if they were going to put out another album, but. Um, <laughs> But, uh, yeah, so, so yeah, I just, you know, it's, it's, I think it's like a lot of things. If you want to do something, you just make a point to surround yourself with that thing and absorb as much of it as you can. And I think that's, like I said, if you want to be a writer, then just write a lot and yeah. try to discipline yourself, try to read stuff you want to be like. And yeah, just, you know, I, I, I've, I found myself in trying to ingratiate myself with people and I grimace to think about how cheesy I was in, in doing so, but you know, with musicians and writers and stuff like that in college and yeah, after college and it's just all kind of come from there. I, well, I think, I mean, listening to that, it, it seems fairly simple, but for whatever reason, people don't understand that like there are people who are absolutely mystified that I have my own podcast, you know? And it's like, they're like, how did you know how to do that? I'm like, I didn't. I just like, started doing it my friend brad had one 
And so I just asked him a bunch of questions and I just started making it. And I go back and listen to my old episodes and I'm like, these intros are brutal to listen to. <laughs> like this is, this is some of the worst shit that anyone has ever committed to, you know, an audio file. But the point is like, you just start finding people and interviewing them and you, you start writing. And I thought I wanted to be a writer for a long time too. A lot of I like I really wanted to be like a pop culture writer. So I was really into like Chuck Klosterman and Bill Simmons and like I at the time I was really, really into Bill Simmons, which I, I find sort of embarrassing now because his sensibility hasn't changed in like fifteen years and mine has. And so I look back on that and I go, like, why why did I want to be like that? I'm like, oh, because I was twenty five. But so I mean you mentioned like you read stuff that, that you kinda wanna be like. Who were some of the people you wanted to be like? I mean, I, I thought I wanted to be a fiction writer for a while because I wrote a lot of fiction and I read a lot of um, stuff that my dad passed down to me. He was mm. a, a hippie and kind of a quasi-intellectual and into philosophy and you know cosmology and these types of things. So I read some sci-fi and some satire and you know lots of Kurt Vonnegut. Yeah, um, Richard Brodigan was a huge uh, early obsession for me. Um, in addition to you know pop stuff like Stephen King, not that I'm denigrating that at all. But uh, yeah, and then, you know, as I, I, I didn't actually read a ton of music journalism um, when I started getting into music journalism. I think I read Spin a lot. And okay. there weren't, you know, a lot of websites back then. I think I read websites for like my favorite bands, like Guided by Voices and stuff. <laughs> right. But as I've gotten older, obviously, I read, you know, kind of the classics, the your Grill Marcuses and people like that. And um, Grill Marcus was in my master's thesis. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. You know, all the, the good modern people and whatnot. Um, but, you know, I think I've, I've, apropos to the title of your podcast, I've kind of just, in the last few years, everything's just kind of broadened out. It's like the pipe has opened up and now I'm just, it's like I no longer want to be a rock critic. Mm. I'm just a, I'm just a fucking dilettante. I'm a John <laughs> of all trades. Like, I, I really, I'm general assignment in the truest sense of the word. Like, really? I just want to, and, 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 and that's not to say I'm an expert. Well, obviously, I'm saying I'm not an expert in anything, but you know, like like every journalist, just kind of parachute into a subject and yeah. try to live there for a little while and then get out. But I just these days, I just kind of write about everything. So, well, I mean, I and that's true. If as I sort of approached this episode, one of the things that I did was, you know, I looked through some of your bylines, and man, it's all over the place. And there was one that I really latched onto recently. Not recently. This was several months ago. Now that I think about it, but you'd written. And I think you'd interviewed David Cross when he came through town. And I went to that show. And so there was a pretty lively discussion on your Facebook page underneath the article that you linked to about that. How has the advent of social media like influenced the way you write and the way that you engage with some of your readers? I mean, I primarily use social media to promote my stuff, which is not the way I guess you're supposed to use it. You're supposed to use it to build your brand as like a human being and provide value to people and whatever, but I'm guilty of the same thing. Like I find Facebook to be pretty terrible and, and <laughs> annoying overall, but you know, I use it to try to share my stories <laughs> and try to get people to read them. So for, in that sense, it's a good tool. And I mean, I, I've used, I, and I'm going to interrupt you real quick yeah, yeah, yeah. because there was a thing, this was a, like one of those dumb Facebook things where it's like, see, see your most commonly used words on Facebook. Mine was Wednesday because that's when I'm pimping the podcast. Oh, yeah. Like it's, it's every Monday that I'm like, tune in this Wednesday, you know, come listen to John <laughs> Wenzel. And I go, Oh God, like my most used word is Wednesday. The next one is like John. The next one's trades. Like I'm like gross. But so yeah, I'm guilty of the exact same thing. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think social media, and the internet in general, it, it gives your stuff a much longer life because it just lives there forever. Um, and that can be good and bad depending on the tenor of the comments section or how stuff is shared. You know, I wrote a book in 2008 and uh, th there's this one comment on Amazon <laughs> that, that just kills me. It keeps me up at night. Not on like a regular basis, but like from time to time, probably tonight, because I just mentioned it. Now I'm going to be thinking, but it's like that, you know, stuff that kind of sticks to you. I, it's it's like a stain on your soul. And I feel that way about certain things like I and I'm not trying to, you know, self-aggrandizingly name drop here. I'm just thinking of examples. But like I wrote a um, I think it was the first thing I ever wrote for Rolling Stone, but it was a review of the killers. They were kicking off their national tour at the First Bank Center. Right. And uh, there was a some comments on it that were like, 
you know, you're, this is damning with faint praise and backwards compliments and where'd you get this asshole to write this and whatever. And, <laughs> and I did go into it hating the killers. So it's <laughs> like, like, and the fact that I was impressed and walked away being like, Hey, these, I, these guys deserve some credit was probably to super fans. Not a great thing. Probably not. But in hindsight, like it's, it's like those things, I don't know, like they, I, journalists are supposed to have a thick skin and, and I do for the most part, but that stuff, it, it trail, it leaves a trail and it, it sticks with me and that's not always a good thing. Oh, it'll crush you. I mean, I, I've written off and on on the internet since 2000 now. And, you know, I still remember some of the shitty things people would say to me about, you know, some joke I made or some, you know, some recap I did of a show. I made a mistake in one of my articles. I was writing about like a Joe Strummer and the Mescaleros album. And instead of saying the slits, I said the Smiths. And I got like 10 emails calling me a fucking idiot for associating mm-hmm. the Smiths with punk rock. Yeah. And you're sitting there at your computer and you're going, God, you fucking assholes. Like, this was an honest mistake. Like, cut me a break. Right. And like, there are times where I can dredge up the words of those emails in my head and I'm not proud of that. Yeah. But God, it happens. And I empathize with you in that regard. Yeah. So yeah, I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm, I don't know if that's like the, the long answer to your short question, but I think, it's good. It gives you, you know, a um, a life uh, online, and and that's I think that's only as good or as bad as as uh, <laughs> the the sum total of all that stuff. Like there was a good Time article that I read today about trolls and internet culture and how it's dragging us down, and it's making the rounds and stuff. A lot of my one of my comedian friends shared it, and uh, you know, it's just interesting. It's I, I've gotten death threats before for stuff I've written. I've gotten people leaving super creepy messages on my voicemail at the Denver Post. Death threats, like, over... Over, like, a, like I wrote a like a pretty cheap, shitty takedown review of a Dream Theater album once, because I think they're a hilarious piece of shit band. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and it was, it was, it was not, you know, this was a long time ago, but it was, it was not, like, a considered, like, nice review. It was, it was the early equivalent of trolling. Was it a hit piece? I mean... Sort of, but, I mean, I meant what I said. I thought it was a horrible album, that they're a, ch- a cheesy, horrible band. But um, it was still meant to inflict like maximum like sarcasm and whatever. Right. And yeah, I got a death threat over it, and it really rattled me. <laughs> and so I would think so. Like I don't know. I don't know if Turnabout is fair play or, or what, but uh, it was uh, yeah. I don't know. Or like I wrote this piece almost two years ago now, and I reposted it last week because it's it's just the gift that keeps on giving. Oh shit! I saw about that, vaping. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and how dumb you look when you're vaping. Yeah. Well, and the original headline was like, vaping may be the trend of the year, but it's a problematic one. <laughs> and I talk about this. Ricardo Baca, the editor of The Cannabist, the Denver Post's marijuana website, yeah. had me on his TV show, his like talk show to talk about this. But that was my original headline. He changed it with my permission to vaping is the dumbest thing ever, <laughs> which is a pretty trolly headline. And, but you know, I signed off on it and indeed I get at least uh, an email a week about it two years later huh. still that's like fuck you you hipster douchebag piece of shit like i cannot even believe <laughs> like just because you don't like it you think you're better than all this stuff so you know it's like like i said you, you got to be careful what you write because <laughs> if you want attention sometimes you'll get it yeah when i was um i hosted a punk show in college and you know, I get I get sometimes like these really like hardcore like gutter punks or crust punks call me up and they'll be like, I can't believe what a faggot you are for playing yellow card on a punk show. Like, what do you like, you know, go back to the playground, you fucking pussy, like play some real punk rock. And I'm like, first of all, how can you like how are you wired to where you want to call the radio host and complain about his taste in music when we live in an era where just turn off the fucking radio and put on. Like, put on a CD of The Damned from 1978. Like, <laughs> gives a shit, right? But uh, it's weird, like, how this can inspire such a vitriolic reaction in people. And, you know, I don't want to turn this into some, like, you know, highfalutin, like, where we're sniffing each other's farts about, like, how smart <laughs> we are. <laughs> but, you know, it's it's one of those things where it's like, you're so pissed off about another person's opinion on pop culture Yet there's all this other real shit going on where you could direct this energy in a really, really positive way to to improve society. Yeah, I mean, look, I've I've been on both sides of it. I've left shitty comments on things before, not stuff I wouldn't stand behind, not stuff that was anonymous or 
defamatory or something, but just, you know, just emotional and hurt and coming yeah. from a place of whatever. Um, and I've also received my share thousands, <laughs> um, cause I've written thousands of articles over, over the years. And, uh, yeah, you know, I get it. It's just when it crosses the line is, is, is when it's, when it's just like too much when it, when it's, it's, it's repeated and relentless yeah. and it's not just a trickle or a few things is it's when it's like a sustained attack. And that's, that's what, that's when I draw the line. Well, that'll wear you down. Absolutely. Indeed. Speaking on that issue. When I was writing for examiner.com about uh, HBO, I thought that would just be a fun side gig. I was kind of between jobs, and it made Sunday nights like I started to dread them because that's when HBO shows its, you know, all its shows. And I knew at the time it was like Boardwalk Empire and Bored to Death and like Eastbound and Down. Like that was that block. And I liked all three of those shows. Mm -hmm. But I knew I had to write about all of them. And it made Monday morning like I I just I dreaded it because I'd have to stay up really late writing three pretty involved reviews of each of these shows, and eventually I burned out when it got like when they were about to debut Game of Thrones. So this places this what like late twenty ten early twenty eleven. Game of Thrones, for better or worse, uh, is something that I will never give a shit about. Like, I just don't care. Mm -hmm. And that drives people crazy. Like, I tell people that. They're like, are you watching Game of Thrones? I'm like, I don't give a shit. Yeah. And uh, and they cannot handle it. They lose their minds over that. It's it's like I told them I just murdered Santa or something. Right. But <laughs> the point the is... The same is true of myself. Oh, uh, really? You don't I've care? never seen a full episode all the way through. Uh, I saw the first one because I had to review it. And I'm and I'm obsessed with, like, like Lord of the Rings, for example. Oh, see... So, like, it makes no. no sense, like, that I haven't seen Game of Thrones. But I just haven't. <laughs> That's fine. I, and obviously, you know, uh, anything Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, this has been covered on this show, but anything that Kyle Ryan refers to as wizards and shit, mm -hmm. I, I'm out. <laughs> like, I just, I, I don't care. But that show was my undoing because I'm like, oh God, like I'm going to have to like dig into this and think about it. I'm like, that's it. I'm done. My question to you is writing about pop culture from the outside looking in seems like it's going to be so much fun. You know, because you get to consume all this media, you probably get to go to free concerts, you get to go to stand-up shows, you get to go to everything under the sun, potentially, um, in terms of subject matter. Does it burn you out, and, and how do you overcome that? Um, and yeah, how, and, yeah. And how do you maintain a love for pop culture? Yeah, I think I think it does burn you out. Or it, it, let, me, let me say this. It burns me out. Yeah. It has burned me out in the past, because I wanted the things I loved to be my job, and then I got what I wanted, not just in a magic box, but because I, you know, worked for it consistently and shipped away at it for years. Yeah. But I did, in a sense, I was very fortunate to get that. But it's also, yeah, you get burned out a little because when your job is to watch movies and play video games and listen to music and see stand-up shows, then there's not really anything left that's just yours. Everything you're <laughs> doing, you're thinking about critically and it everything becomes work. There's no separation. And that that may sound like some kind of whiny first world problem type thing. You know, there was a, a, a time when I got pretty burned out from it and I had to kind of take a step back and recharge a little. And uh, well, sure, because you those just have to keep like a really strong perspective on why you're doing it. I can imagine because at its core, you know, entertainments are meant as diversions and leisure activities. Right. And if you turn those into a professional pursuit, where do you go? to unwind like what becomes your diversion what becomes your leisure time and you know i think about stand-up comics who end up watching a lot of like true crime documentaries mm -hmm. just because like that's something where they can totally unplug from their day-to-day -day grind which is being funny which is someone else's diversion and leisure right and so how did you overcome that when you became burned out um well it kind of coincided with some life changes like when we had our first kid and excuse me, I kind of disengaged from the social scene, you know, when I was going to concerts and shows a lot. And that was kind of necessary for a few reasons. Yeah, that, that kind of allowed me some time to recharge. And, you yeah. know, I've had kind of more like big life events happen in the past, I'd say three or four years than in the preceding 20 in terms of, you know, just big major changes and, and readjustments and things like that. People dying and getting sober and getting married, having kids, buying a house, all that settling down, having to reevaluate a lot, a lot of things. And, and that's been good because it's been a breath of fresh air, but I was also like insecure about it and scared and sort of like 
clingy about the way my life used to be. Because for sure. a while, my wife, I met her at the Denver Post. She was a Kathleen St. John. She was a writer um, there for a while. I used to read her on the AV Club. Yeah, so she had a, co- a weekly column for the Denver Boulder AV Club called Strange Lunch, which was a weekly that. food review. She wrote their restaurant capsules, and she did a lot of other articles for them. She was the clubs and uh, bars columnist for the Denver Post for a while, the nightlife columnist. Nice. And she did some other stuff. And, you know, I mostly wrote about music and comedy for them for a long time. So we were out every night of the week, you know, partying and seeing shows. And it was great. It was a dream job. And I, and I took it seriously, and I... And I, I feel like I worked very hard at it and I, I didn't just, you know, fuck off and whatever. But, <laughs> right. but yeah, I mean, I, it, you, it was, you weren't living like Vince Neal or something, right? Uh, <laughs> despite my best attempts. No, um, <laughs> I, I could never have his hair, but, uh, <clears throat> yeah, it, it just, you know, after a while, after a while it was like having a night in where we weren't partying and where we could just, for God's sakes, like put up a wall around us and just chill and drink water and go to bed early <laughs> started to be like a luxury. And, uh, <laughs> then, then it became like kind of an enforced thing when uh, we had our our first kid um, four years ago, and uh, and since then, you know, I d- I've just had a lot of stuff happen, and it, it's just been overall positive, even though it's been very hard. So, I, I I don't know if that really answers your question, but no, it does. I think taking a step back and just thinking about why you're doing what you're doing never hurts, and this is a, a bit of a cleat. A cliche, like a midlife crisis type cliche, but examining the things you're most afraid of and the things you're most clingy about is good too. Yeah. It forces you to be like, okay, why am I so uh, whatever insecure or defensive about this? And um, I have, I've had to do that with almost every aspect of my life lately. And it, it's not ultimately been a bad thing. Yeah, I, I think the net result is almost always positive, but that doesn't mean it's it's always easy to do. You know, I mean, it, it can be very painful. Yeah. To to go through evaluations like that. Totally. So it bears mention here that I've had Kevin and Taylor from These Things Matter on here. I've had Bree Davies on here. You are the last remaining piece of the puzzle <laughs> <laughs> from an article you wrote in, I want to say, 2014. No, 2015. About podcasts. Yeah. For which I interviewed you. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, finally closing the loop on that. The collusion and favors have come <laughs> to a full circle. Cl- yes. Which is so funny because you sent me, uh, you sent me a note like through like this email account that I, that I don't check as often. And then I think you left a message like on my Facebook page. Like we'd never met before. Um, and I was surprised and working in media relations, I know anytime that you get, Something like this, it's a gift, mm-hmm. like because it falls out of the sky. Something like you mean when you were in an article I wrote. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. So yeah. like if you have if you have a reporter calling to want to ask to do to to quote your client in a positive way in a story, like that doesn't always happen. You know that's that's always a gift. So I'm like, man, this is fantastic. He actually wants to feature my podcast in this story about podcasts, which. You know, was really, really cool. And I, I mean, we certainly, we haven't talked since then. Not really. No, I mean, we've followed each other on social media and stuff. Yeah. uh, No, and we'll interact on, you know, post and stuff. But this is our first time meeting in person. What a glorious day. (laughs) What a day. (laughs) Um, After you wrote that article, Mm -hmm. I found, because like, I, I'll be honest, I didn't have exposure to these things matter before that. So I started listening. And one of the first ones I found was... You were a guest on their show talking about Pee Wee. Mm-hmm. And so I go, okay, well, this is fantastic because I love Pee Wee too. Like I grew up, my dad, you mentioned your dad like passed along, you know, all this stuff that he was reading. Mm-hmm. Same thing happened with me with comedy. Like, I, you know, I'm like this eight-year-old kid quoting W.C. Fields bits and, you know, Mark's brothers and the Bickersons. And- oh, yeah. My, my dad did that too. Yeah. He passed along yeah. these like Borscht Belt comics. and Right. Yeah. Yeah, all like and this really weird sensibility like Bob and Ray. I mean, you're from Ohio, right? So, yep. um you were talking about Pee-wee on that episode, which was really really exciting. And so <laughs> my question is, is it more difficult or is it easier to write about the things that you love most? And how does that approach to an article differ than with something you're maybe a little more neutral in that you parachute into? Uh I think it depends on the thing and the approach you're taking. Like when David Bowie died, between hearing that he had died from the moment I woke up to getting into the office on my bus ride to the Denver Post, yeah. in my head, I wrote 
pretty much a full article mm. that uh, went up that morning before noon and was shared and read widely. It was a little bit of like a tribute. It wasn't so much like an obit. Yeah. Because I love David Bowie intensely and have for, you know, pretty much my whole life. I was raised on him. And so that like came easy to me. I, I don't know why. It just did. When uh, I wrote an obituary of Macho Man Randy Savage or, or, <laughs> or a tribute of Macho Man Randy Savage. Right, you just snapped right into that. Yeah. <laughs> I see what you did there. Uh, I'm so sorry. And you're an asshole. Uh, but uh, <laughs> that one like just snapped into place right. for, to borrow your, your phrasing there. Yes. And it was it was one of those things where it's like I wrote it in my head and then the words just flowed out of me. And yeah. I, I don't know why. But yeah, to your point. So, so some things are like that. Other things are not. Some things yeah. I like them so much and I want to do them justice that I overthink the shit out of it. <laughs> right. And I end up writing a very stiff, uh, robotic, you know, pseudo intellectual piece that um that is overbaked and fourth guessed and you know all that stuff and i can probably think of way more examples of that than i can think of stuff that just organically flowed and that i'm really happy with right well yeah i mean it's for whatever reason we're just wired to remember the failures much easier than we are the successes and yeah. that, that sucks and that's shitty and i i think that's especially true of writers yeah but you know, like I think I, there's certain things I love them so much that it, it's I, I it's there's this instinctual reaction to them where, where I just regard them with this like mystical dreamlike passion. You know, I when I saw, and I'll fucking brag about this until the day I die because I'm it's, it was like one of the shining moments in my life. I got to see The Force Awakens earlier. Uh, I'm sorry, anyone who wants to punch me in the face. <laughs> A few days before it came out with some other critics. Uh, nice. and, and I wrote the post's starred review, which was, I, I felt like possibly the apex of my life, you know, right. like, like getting paid during the weekday to go see the force awakens before it came out and write the official starred review for the Denver post that was going to represent the paper, blah, 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 blah. Like I, I wrote that review and it was posted online in like an hour. Wow. And, and I still, and I, and I've reread it a couple of times cause I've, I've had to for various reasons and it's been shared and yada, yada. And uh, I'm pretty happy with it. I'm st- I still stand behind it. That's it's, good. It was a little metaphor heavy. It was a little, you know, blowjobby. But um, <laughs> I, I I I stand behind it. And and that that was an example. Where it was very easy. And it just it just came out. And I'd been preparing for that moment my whole goddamn life. <laughs> goddamn, <laughs> that's fantastic. In some ways, but like I said, other stuff. It's it's totally not like that. And it's 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 like, you know, Sisyphus putting the pushing the rock up the hill. <laughs> and yeah, <laughs> when you get there, it just rolls right back down again. Yeah, no. Uh, probably the best thing I wrote for Examiner was this review of a Ricky Gervais stand-up special that I didn't particularly like, but I knew exactly how I wanted to talk about it, and I knew what my criticism of it was, and I knew it was fair, and I knew it was on target, and I actually went back and reread it. I go, man, this is actually pretty fucking good. Whereas, you know, I love the show Eastbound and Down. I never found a rhythm to writing about that show. I have, I still have no idea how to write about that show properly. Um, whereas bored to death, I could write about pretty well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't know what, and it, which was a show I liked less than Eastbound and Down. I, I'm not really sure about it. I, when I was in college, I wrote for this site called 411 Mania that still exists actually. And they have a bunch of different tabs. You know, there's movies, music, TV, MMA, pro wrestling. There's a bunch of them. And I wrote this review of, and this will tell you a little bit more about my musical taste at the time than you probably need to know. But a band called Zebrahead had released an album called MFZB, which to this day is an album I still really like. And I think it's probably as good as Zebrahead is going to get. Mm-hmm. I gave it like 9.5 out of 10 or something. <laughs> and I went back and reread it. I go, this is fucking embarrassing. Like, this is one of the worst things ever written. But what was funny is Zebra had put out a hype video online and it quoted my review. Mm-hmm. And I go, all right, well, that's kind of cool. If yeah. they feel like they got a little juice out of that, I wasn't being paid. I really liked the album at the time. I, I hope that, you know, someone has thrown that review into a volcano at this point in terms of writing quality. But, you know, what are you going to do? Yeah, no, I mean, look, it's flattering when someone uh, quotes you in something or uses your thing to promote something. If you're doing it for that reason, you're you're a horrible person and an unethical journalist. But yeah, <laughs> like it's it's flattering. But you know, I think any artist or creative person will say 
the second they're finished with something, it's it's embalmed and they can't go back and fiddle with it, and therefore they hate it and, and <laughs> right. it's embarrassing and they want to disown it. You know, any band the second their album is out, they're onto the new stuff. Yeah. Any writer, they read something they did five years ago or two years ago or any comic old material, they just they just cringe. And I think, yeah, I think it it should be that way. I think that that's that's a very organic way of creating things whatever they are if you feel like you're leveling up and you're not spinning your wheels then uh if i can just throw out as many cliches as possible (laughs) um you know then then you shouldn't feel but that's also not to say that you shouldn't hate everything you've ever done and not not be proud of something you did in the past either because i i do feel that way about some of my stuff so yeah no i mean that's a good point and i just finished reading the hike by drew mcgarry which was a great book and I really liked it. And so I was, you know, reading some reviews of it after the fact, like I'm that type of person. I'll read reviews after the fact, like I, I'll read them before I'll read them after. I don't care. I just like to know what everyone's saying. And I stumbled across this Q and a that he had done. And he said, I've read that book so many fucking times now. I hate it. He's like, I'm happy that everyone else likes it, but I cannot look at it objectively because I spent so much time with it. Yeah. And I mean, that's probably true of granted, you know, you're in, you're in journalism that, and you write for a daily paper. And so you're not spending the sheer volume of time that you would on say like a 250 page novel. Right. But when you're done with something, you know, how quickly are you to move on from it? Um, I mean, it, it, again, it depends on the thing, but, uh, I always like these quotes about movies. You know, Hitchcock always said that, the making a movie was the most boring part for him. You know, he, he loved writing the script and, um, and the, um, why am I blanking on what this is called? The, uh, whatchamacallit, the, the <laughs> figuring out the shots and the, Oh, the storyboarding, the storyboarding process. Yeah. To him, to him, that was making the movie. Okay. You, you make a tight movie in that sense, huh. uh, shooting it, you know, all that stuff, watching it, that, that was less interesting. And, there's also a Peter Jackson quote, a director who I love. You know that you're never finished with anything; it just gets taken away from you. <laughs> so, like, not that not that things always benefit from fiddling over them for too long, because they usually don't. Well, so I'll throw another quote. There's at some you. kind of middle ground there. I'll throw another quote at you. Uh, Lauren Michaels says Saturday Night Live doesn't go on because the show's ready. Right. It goes on because it's Saturday at yeah, eleven thirty. Exactly. So, you know, as a daily newspaper reporter who's done that on and off for you know twenty years or so. I think the volume of what I write is definitely exists because of deadlines. Like I'm a deadline oriented person and uh, I'm not sure I would have written nearly as much or done nearly as much as I have without those types of deadlines. So uh, yeah, I, I, I respect deadlines and and I think that they're very valuable things and they, they force me to not procrastinate and, and to get shit done. And the longer I have to work on something, probably the less I'll work on it until the very last minute. Well, yeah, and I mean, the nice thing about a deadline is it will force you to get to the essence of the fucking point, right? which is great. I mean, that's true in my business, too. Working in PR, you know, I have various things that I have to turn around, whether I'm writing a letter or, you know, an op-ed or just an email. It's like, okay, what is the actual thing that you need to say? And you will drive quickly to that. And that's one of those things that you'll learn if you've done journalism at any level. It'll it'll force you to get to the fucking point, and you won't dither as much as you might otherwise. Mm-hmm. So that's great. Totally. So, okay, going forward, in your estimation, what's the future of journalism look like? Hmm. So a real small, closed-ended, specific question there. Um, <laughs> I, you know... I, li- I, I like to end with the tight questions. God, man. I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I have no idea. I think... <laughs> I, I, I think if... The principles of journalism, which are ideas and not, you know, physical things that can be destroyed and whatever, if they are carried on and passed along and adhered to, I think the future of journalism is bright. I think yeah. it's writing in a, you know, plain, not, not to paraphrase journalism 101, but, um, you know, writing in a plain, understandable manner, uh, being responsible to your audience, holding people in power to account, afflicting you know, powerful people. If you're doing all those things, journalism has a bright future and, and not trying to obscure things, not using jargon and, and shop worn phrases and, and all this stuff. And just like you said, getting to the essence of something, doing a service, holding institutions and people, you know, holding, holding their feet to the fire 
that that's what journalism is. And I, I don't see why that would go away uh, just because the, the medium has changed or the technology is changing. Not getting paid for it, uh, not getting paid living wages, all that stuff. That sucks because we, you know, it's partially the industry's fault. We didn't finish uh, figure out the business model and start charging people when we should have, you know, 15 right. years ago for it. You know, ha- just habits and technology have changed, yada, yada. That's a big topic in and of itself. But I think the future, I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic that good journalism will continue to be around and thrive. But it's, it's, it's not going to do so just automatically or by itself. People have to like, you know, there has to be like people keeping the flame alive and teaching the way to do it intelligently, ethically, responsibly. Yeah. No, I'm inclined to agree. And I, I think that's I think that's a really good answer. And to your point, one of the things my dad was a huge influence on me writing wise. And he said, and I didn't like this. This doesn't make sense when you're trying to be really show offy as a writer, which is your first instinct as you get better at writing. My dad said he's like, use as many short declarative sentences as you can. And I go, okay. And it took me a long time to come back around and go, okay, I just need to make those sentences more impactful. You know, as, as I think about the future of journalism, I don't know exactly what it's going to look like either, but I think you're absolutely right. And I think it's more needed now than ever. You know, my hope is that people will lean on it to verify the credibility and the veracity of some of the claims that are being made by advocates on all sides, because almost everyone's an advocate now and you almost need an independent voice to verify. And I feel like journalism fills that role. So I don't know. That's my hope anyway. Amen. So (laughs) my other question is, how do you see yourself fitting into that? Have you ever been tempted to go dark side? Uh, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, that's an interesting question because the Denver post, uh, annually, uh, semi annually has been going through buyouts and layoffs the last few years. Yeah. My features in the arts and entertainment department was, you know, pretty decimated by this last round, and there's just a, a couple of us left there. I mean, we're still—I still very much believe in my colleagues and the work we do there, and you know, covering this growing, thriving city and trying to do it without conflicts of interest and do it, you know, intelligently and whatever. But um, yeah, I mean, I—I don't—I don't know how much longer uh, I'm going to be at the post. I love it there. I've been there for 16 years in various capacities, <laughs> which is a long time to be anywhere. I mean, it's kind of amazing for anyone to be at a newspaper for that long. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, but I, I just happen to ha- have been. So I don't know. I mean, I've thought about it. I've I've done, you know, not not stuff that conflicts with the post, sure. but, but I've done, you know, some freelance projects that are are more on the sort of PR side. Like I said, not not stuff that would ever compromise my integrity at the post. But uh, I don't know. You know, I mean, it's it's possible. I have a kid and another one on the way, and um, I'm the breadwinner. <laughs> right. You know, we have a lot of debt, and you know, like I I I, I don't begrudge people cobbling a life together to support themselves personally i don't i'm not really interested in pr and marketing it's not what i'm good at it's 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 the other side of the coin from journalism but it's a big coin with very different varnishes (laughs) and uh wow that's it's not really my passion or skill set but um i don't know it's possible i I guess i could see myself doing copywriting or something in the future yeah yeah i mean who the hell knows right but for now you are at the post um, you are at all these other places, and you seem to be making it work. I am happy, no matter how shitty and craven Facebook is or may look, that you post your stuff there. Be- <laughs> well, thank you. Because, I mean, it's like the Mall of America, you know? Like, you go there, and you get this never-ending conveyor belt of content, and whenever your stuff comes up, it's like, that's fantastic. Like, I didn't have to go find it. I'm happy that it's in front of me. Uh, because I think you do great work. Well, so. thank you very much. So let's, uh, now's the time of the show. Plug, where can we find you? Uh, Facebook, Twitter, Denver Post, plug whatever you want, man. Yeah, so I'm just, I'm just uh, my Twitter handle's just John Wenzel. I post most of my stories there. Um, yeah, I, I think I, I write, you know, seven to 12 stories a week, byline stories a week for the post. So I'm, it's a pretty fi- reliable firehose of content there. And uh, I've, most frequently lately I've been freelancing for Esquire and Split Cider. Yeah. Um, but you know, I've got old stuff on Vice and The Guardian and Rolling Stone and I've got a, a book that's now very outdated about the second comedy boom, the the coming of the second comedy boom called Mock Stars. Right. And uh yeah, you you can find me in all those places. That's fantastic, John. Well, good luck going forward and continued success to you. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. You bet. 
And that wraps up episode 106 of the John of All Trades podcast. Big thanks to John Wenzel for being on the show. Make sure to follow him on the social media because the articles that he writes, that he links to, are great. And I say that as someone who has enjoyed him before he even came on this show. It's one of the reasons I wanted him to come here. And hey, as a bonus to me, he lives right down the way. So hopefully I'll get to see him a lot more. The places to find John are linked on the John of All Trades companion blog piece to this episode. Go to johnofalltrades.us, J-O-N of alltrades.us. You'll find all 106 episodes. I think technically there's 109, given the solo episodes that I've done. But iTunes only carries the most recent 100. So if you want to dig deep, every time I post a new episode, an old one falls off. So dig deep into the archives and find some great stuff on there. You'll love it. I'm going to be back here with a new episode next week. That's right. We are live. Episodes go live on Wednesdays. The only place to find a preview of them are on Facebook. And those happen on Mondays. So like John of All Trades on Facebook, it's J-O-A-T-Pod. And you know what? Get a leg up on everyone else in terms of who's coming up on the show. So, we'll see you Monday with a new episode preview. We'll see you Wednesday with the episode itself. And until then, say goodnight, Gracie. That's good, Johnny.